0: You open your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. We took a little tour the last couple of weeks through the end of 12. Here we come to chapter 13. This great section on on how it is that we should behave, how it is that we should live out our faith, the faith that is given to us by our Heavenly Father, the faith that is fixed upon our hearts and fixed within, and then the Spirit enables us to live it out in these ways, and we're going to look at just one particular way in this list. So if you're able, would you stand as we read the Word of God? Lord, as we read your word, we pray that your spirit would descend upon us, that we would have understanding, that it would clearly be seen in our minds and in our hearts what it is that you call us to, the importance that you place upon these things, that we should live them out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. This is the inspired word of God for us today. Please be seated. Now just a couple items before we get into uh the the particular aspect do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this some have entertained angels without knowing them now i have read from in various books of individuals who have uh participated in things and done things and all of a sudden looked around and that person as they cared for someone that person was gone um, um i remember that um who was it? R.C. Sproul tells a story of going off and, and teaching at some session. And um, the woman came to him and said, you know, my husband, I think my husband is going to walk out on me. And I'm very concerned. And he said, uh, well, what is his name? And she told him. And uh, they, they were in prayer about it. And uh, so Sproul got up and he, he left. He had to go to the airport. So he got in his rental car and he's driving off. And here he finds this guy hitchhiking on the side of the road. So he says, well, I'll, I'll just pick him up. And and when he stopped, he looked and he said, he said to himself, "That looks exactly like the guy that, that the lady was telling me about. This is her husband that was that was going to leave her." And 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 he got in the car and and uh, Sproul goes on to have this little conversation. And all of a sudden, he looks at him and says, "You just left your wife, haven't you?" And the guy, <laughs> shocked. And he says, "says I know what you've done. This was not right. I know the reasons." You're just being selfish. He went on and on, and, and and the guy, I say this, the guy was convinced that he was in the car with an angel. Okay, that was the only way that he could have understood all that was. And so Sproul says, "Are you ready to go back home?" After this the guy says yes, so he takes him, takes him, drops him off at home, goes on his way. Okay, so you know, you never know when it's going to be angels or somebody who's got information about you. Okay, remember prisoners. As though in prison with them, it was very common at those days that uh, when you were in prison, you were just left to yourself. If you did not have helpers there, uh, friends on the outside who would care for you, uh, you would receive hardly any food or anything at all. So ministry to prisoners was very important at that time. And it really came, when, when Christianity came... Uh, into the the world it it really revolutionized many aspects of life and one of them was care for prisoners uh, care for strangers as an example all right now let's get into the the portion that we're going to deal with let me give you a quote from Alexander McLean he was a uh, uh, a Scottish uh, theologian he said the world takes its notion of God most of all from those who say they belong to God's family they read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see, they see us, they only hear about Jesus Christ. When the famous atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote his essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, he cited more than anything else the behavior of Christians as his biggest impediment to becoming a believer. Now, he went on in his essay, and he picked out all the worst-case scenarios of Christian behavior throughout time, which, you know, he was an atheist, so he kind of was going in that direction anyway. But it nevertheless, it doesn't lessen the impact that we have to face that our behavior as Christians, as Christian men and women, as Christians, Christian young men and young women as Christian children it is imperative that our lives reflect what the Lord has done in our lives and when we act in inappropriate ways when we are uh, caught in in any variety of sin when marriages fail, when Christian families are in turmoil the consequences are far more widespread than we would think far more widespread than we would think it's not just as an example my sin would not just affect me. It would affect the body of Christ. It would affect all those who know anything about Christianity. How many times have Christian leaders fail or Christian people that we know fallen into some sin and everybody goes, ha, I told you they're no different than us. Who wants to be a Christian when they act like that? Their secret sin is revealed. Okay. In our passage, the author is dealing with aspects of the believer's ethical life how he demonstrates love for the brethren, love for strangers, love for those in prison, and love for our spouses. Tertullian, the early church father, wrote, in living out our faith in demonstrable ways, Christians become carriers of their confession. Carriers of their confession. It's not just what we say that is our confession, it is a it is demonstrated in what we do. If I confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I carry that confession in all that I do, in every aspect of life. Whether I'm at work, whether I'm at the gas station pumping gas, whether I'm digging in the backyard, it is Christianity must permeate all that I am and that I do. Now, we're only going to focus on one aspect of this passage today, that is that living out of our faith and it is within the bounds of marriage. Purity faithfulness, commitment are not the exclusive realm of marriage. So if you say, well, I'm not married, uh, so I can tune out, no, you can't do that. If you say, well, I've a pretty good marriage, I'm not going to listen to that, no, you, you can't do that. Uh, because if you've got a pretty good marriage, that doesn't mean you have the marriage that is ideal. And that's what we want to strive for. The author of Hebrews is just demonstrating these ethics that we are called to live out in a particular aspect of our lives and that is within marriage now that is the, the one of the pillars of society and it seems to be one of the pillars of society that's under attack to redefine according to the the likes of modern day society attempting to go against the millennia of uh, of of, of uh, traditional view of what marriage is to be about Since it's Mother's Day, it's appropriate that we look at this passage and we aren't going to just focus on mothers. Now, it is God's intent, certainly since creation, that mom and dad live together in the bonds of marriage, and that's where they raise their children. We know that doesn't always work out that way. Uh, And there is forgiveness in those areas, but that doesn't change God's intent and desire. And the fact that we would know those blessings within the parameters that he has set for us. Verse 4 says, The marriage bed, let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's the same term used to describe Jesus back in chapter 7 of Hebrews. It refers to purity, both religious purity and moral purity. And when we look at the word, we, we also can look at the opposite of, of what it refers to. It talks about purity, the opposite would be a pollution or a stain or a corruption. So if it's undefiled, then it should not be stained, it should not be polluted, it should not be corrupted. We should guard this intimacy that belongs only in marriage and keep it from any form of pollution or corruption. Charles Spurgeon writes about this verse in particular. He says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. We should hear the ring of preciousness. The Bible is telling us, let marriage always be thought of as precious, let it be treasured like gold and silver and rare jewels. Let it be revered and respected like the noblest, most virtuous person you have ever known. Let it be esteemed and valued as something terribly costly. In other words, when you think of marriage, let yourself be gripped by emotions of tremendous respect and sanctity. In marriage, in relation to marriage, cultivate the feeling that this is not to be touched quickly or handled casually, or treated commonly. In God's eyes, marriage is precious, and therefore, he says, let the marriage be held in honor among all. So when we look at marriage, it is something that we hold, in a sense, gingerly, like you would see a precious vase, and you would not grip it. Uh, you know, first thing, walk up and grab hold of it. That's not what you do. You, 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 you gather it as it is very, very valuable. Spurgeon says that's how we view marriage. Now, we all pretty much know the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We know that's a clear prohibition against any unfaithfulness during marriage, but it also provides for us the challenge before marriage as to not dishonor the purity of marriage or the vows of what we are looking forward to. But the prohibition, as we saw earlier, in undefiled and stained, the prohibition against adultery is also a positive step towards what we are to hold as valuable. Okay, if you see you're not supposed to murder, what does that mean? We also see the opposite in Scripture: love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, and the the prohibition um, the marriage bed is to be undefiled carries with it the positive inference that The marriage bed is something special. It is something to be held as very precious. It is a gift of intimacy that is to be experienced only there. So in order to do this, in order to hold marriage in such a preciousness, and such a valued position, we have to resist the things of our days and the times that we face. If we go back to New Testament times, we can look at Rome and at Corinth and at Ephesus, and they were hotbeds of paganism. And I mean hotbeds of paganism. That's where you could go and worship, in in sexual immorality, worship in those forms. Prior to the arrival of Christianity, the residents of these cities in particular, these, these three cities in particular, treated a monogamous relationship with contempt. Now just think about that for a moment. For, for generations, we have viewed monogamy as the norm, as what God has laid out for us. This is what should be. But in these times, anybody who was monogamous were looked down upon. You're just out of step with society. Okay? Jump in and join the, you know, jump into water. It's fine. Come and join us in our sin. Okay? But Christianity came and said that no, this is not what God wants. And what they did is they looked at these people who were formerly with them in all of their pagan behavior and now they were committed in monogamous relationships and they could not understand it. They thought they were abnormal. Something had happened to them. Now, the Roman governor Pliny is writing to the Roman emperor Trajan attempting to describe to him this christians this christianity and what it's about pliny wrote these christians bind themselves by oath not for any criminal end but to avoid theft adultery and to never break their word imagine that it's not thieves taking an oath of thieves but it is an oath to bind yourself To live faithfully, an oath to bind yourself, to live without lying, an oath to bind yourself, not to steal. That's what Christians do. They bind themselves in a pattern of behavior that is different from the world. Christian morals really were out of step. They were unique in the New Testament world. And it's becoming, unfortunately, I think increasingly plain that we are out of step as well with so much of today's world when it comes to patterns of behavior. Now, let's understand the implication that the marriage bed is undefiled. In in chapter 13, verse 4, it's much further reaching meaning than just physical faithfulness to our spouses. In Timothy, as an example, when it talks about the qualifications for leadership, it says the husband of one woman. And, And does that mean that a man who's not married can't be An elder, no, that's not what it says. But it means the person must have eyes and ears and an attitude only for their spouse. And if they're not married, then they should have eyes and ears and attitudes for no other person except the Lord until the Lord opens that door at which that time they might be married. See, there are others in the world, but you have committed yourself only to one. You stood, maybe you stood here. And you took the vows. Now, if, if you did it, uh, when I was here, then I told you that, that all you have to do is once you get here, you just do what I say, say what I tell you to say, and when I tell you to leave, then you leave. But in that time, you have committed yourself before the Lord to that person for the rest of your life. You say, Ugh. but you don't know what they're like. I mean, it's been 10 years, and and they're really different than that day that we got married. Well, of course they're different. No, you haven't changed, obviously. Okay, but they're really different. Ah, We've grown apart. No, you've grown apart because you haven't worked on it. You've grown apart because you haven't put the energy in. If your attitude is, I don't know this person anymore, it's because you have not taken the time to really dig into who they are, to invest yourself in their life. That's what happens, okay? That is what happens. You must have eyes and ears only for one person. Now, you must have no room in your life except for that one person, no room in your heart. No one else can be at that level of intimacy except your spouse. Now, to a large portion of society today, this is a foreign language, okay? They just don't understand this. Let me illustrate it. A pastor friend of mine was invited to, to teach a portion of a college course on human sexuality okay it was one of those seminar courses so he had three hours uh, in which to present the biblical view of sexuality so uh, he, he walked in the classroom and he said something along these lines he said what i'm about to say will be foreign to most of you you simply will not understand it you will think that i am from mars and i am speaking a different language to you I say that because you do not, you, we do not start at the same place. We do not start from a common set of values and understanding of what is right and what is wrong. And then he took the next 45 minutes of his three hours to lay out the gospel of Christ that some might start from that place. See, he stood up and said, what I'm about to share with you is so radical from the rest of society as to be considered abnormal. Abnormal. How many times do we look at uh, Hollywood as an example and find that somebody has been married for 26 years and we go, wow, 26 years in Hollywood? That's abnormal. I I just heard uh, Dustin Hoffman has been married to his wife for 26 years. That's why I picked that number. I said, I didn't even know he was married. Okay? But for 26 years in that society. Now, we were talking in Sunday school um, about a little bit about length of marriage. 25 years, this December for us, okay? How many of you have been married for longer than 25 years? Just, I think we're safe in putting up our hands. Okay, all right. How many of you would like to be married at least 25 years? Okay, that's good, okay? To do that, you have to commit yourself to that person. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and there was the Meadows Racetrack, and we had a horse racetrack up there, and it was for trotters and pacers. That, that means you get the, the sulky, then the jockey rides on the little wagon, the sulky, and the, the trotters uh, move their legs one way, pacers move their legs the other, but they don't gallop, okay? And, and I don't know why I was going there, but there's some important reason why I was going to, <laughs> to, the, uh, <laughs> to the Meadows racetrack. Oh, well, maybe it'll come back later, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, not, Not enough coffee this morning, apparently, something like that. Okay, well, the biblical view of sexuality, he said, which I'm about to present, this is my friend, he said, will be a foreign language to you. You will simply not understand. You may even think it is abnormal. It was certainly abnormal in the New Testament times when people's lives began to change, when they began to move away from uh, adultery and and just fornication and all those sexual sins and began to commit themselves to one another as unto the Lord. In a study I read just recently, it says, The ideal of romantic friendship and marriage in today's world is a distinctive part of the West's understanding of marriage. This idolized view has intensified today to the point that many now expect their marriages to be an endlessly euphoric, deeply spiritualized union of uniquely matched and sexually compatible souls. Sounds like a dating service advertisement, doesn't it? That we should just, you know, it's just going to be so good all the time. And and let's let's go back. How many you've been married twenty five more more than twenty five years? Okay, was there a bad day? One bad day in that marriage? Okay, yes. Okay, there have been struggles. <laughs> I don't want to know more than one. No, the one's all, uh, that's enough. Okay, those are the struggles that we face. Okay, but the blessings that are found in the parameters that the Lord sets for us, as in marriage, go far beyond those things. They are worth the effort that we put in to make it right was counseling with a couple this week who will, will be married here in September. They're not from this church. They're just uh, going to you know, use my services and use this building, and I make them go through the, the counseling session. And I said, you know what? What happens when your car breaks down? He says, well, I, I take it and I get it fixed. Do you fix it? Well, no, I can't fix it. It's computerized. I don't know what to do with it. He said, what's going to happen when your marriage starts to getting in trouble? There was this long silence wouldn't you take it to a professional to get help? And they said, well, yeah, I guess. I said, of course you would. If you're unable to fix it yourself, you take it to somebody who does that on a regular basis. This is what they do. There are things that, that you will face that may be beyond your ability, maybe out of selfishness, maybe simply out of ignorance, to deal with. That is when you go to a professional and you seek help. It might only be, you know, 20 minutes, an hour with somebody, But if it's taken 15 years for you to get here, it will not take 20 minutes to fix it, okay? But you go and get it fixed. You go and get it fixed. Al Mohler, who's a president of Baptist Seminary up in Louisville, very good Christian thinker, he said that it used to be that people wanted to move to marriage as a sign of adulthood, The delay of marriage, and he says the appalling lack of biblical understanding of what it really means among young adults is a major demonstration of how we weakened our conviction about marriage, even in the Christian community. What we've developed in the church is extended adolescence. We need to get back to where adulthood equals marriage. Okay? Oh, they're just kids. Okay? When you step into the world of marriage, you're an adult. Okay, There are adult decisions and adult consequences, and we have to act like adults in marriage. You can't go in and, and act like a little kid or a, a teenager who has to have their own way all the time in marriage. It's about sacrifice. It's about taking what you are and giving it away to the other person. Well, how much should I give away? You should give everything away. Everything that you have should go to the other person, and they should try their best to give it all to you. Marriage is 50-50. No, it's not. It's 100-100. If you don't go into it with a 100-100 mindset, you better get a mindset. It will take 100% of you and 100% of the other person, 100% of the time. Will it all be good? No. Is it worth it? You bet it is. Let's look at Luke chapter 14. And I still haven't remembered why I was going to the racetrack. Okay, I just, I just, it just passed me for some reason. Luke chapter 14, verses thir- verse 33, 34, 35. Now this seems like a sudden change, but you'll understand it once we get there. Luke chapter 14, verse 33. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Well, I guess we're not his disciples, right? You all have something. You haven't given it away yet. Ah, it's not giving it away. It is that you can't be tied to those things. You have to be willing to give them up for the things of the kingdom. Not that you have to, but you have to be willing to part with them for the things of the kingdom. Therefore, salt is good. But even salt has become tasteless with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It seems like a sudden change there. Okay? Well, if I'm going to serve the Lord, what do I have to do? I have to be willing to give up everything. And salt is good. Unless it's lost its flavor. If it's lost its saltiness, it's not good for anything. What's the connection here with what we're talking about? Christians are salt of the earth to the degree with which we are out of step with society. Okay? You can't walk in lockstep with society and be salt. You will not be salt. You will be tasteless salt. You will go with society. When it comes to the things of marriage, Christians must be countercultural in today's world. The things of marriage are going this way. They're going to less emphasis on it, less emphasis on the importance of it, a, a dilution of what the biblical marriage is. We need to go out of step with society. Then we can be salt. You can't be salt if you're in step with society. If your attitudes, if your understanding, if your mindset, if your worldview of marriage is what the world has, you will be non-salty. You want to be salt? You've got to walk in step with what the Lord says, what marriage is like. The conviction of a lifetime, the conviction of willing to work, going and finding the help that you need, going and doing all those things, giving up all that you are, the other person today my whole aim today has been to call each of us in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ to be in sync with god about marriage and out of sync with the world about marriage that appears to be going in a different way we need to be in sync with what god says get our cues for how to think how to feel about marriage not from the things of this age but from God who made us who made this relationship and who placed us in it for those of us who are married and it is for his glory and for the furthering of his kingdom so let's be clear mom dad grandma grandpa uncle aunt whoever you are purity is in That's not what the world says, but that's what Scripture says. Purity is in. okay. Faithfulness is in. Abstinence outside of marriage is in. Purity before marriage is in. This is what the Word says. Complete giving yourself away to the other person is in. Now, if you read the magazines or watch the news shows, that's not what you will find. But if you read this, the unchanging... Word of God, you'll find that that is what is in. We have to be bold enough to say to one another, to our children, to our grandchildren, to our nieces and nephews, the world is wrong and the Bible is right. I don't care what your friends say. I don't care what counsel you get from those who are not believers. We must hold marriage and the marriage bed in highest esteem. It must be precious to us. We have to be willing to put aside the wisdom of the world, the counsel of any friends we get that do not believe or do not point us to the word and focus only on what God calls us to do. To do that, we've got to put aside our own desires and pick up the things of God and live in that fashion. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and your word is clear. This high place that marriage and the marriage bed is to have in our society and in our lives. We see that the relationship between a husband and a wife patterned after the relationship of Christ and the church as Christ is the bridegroom. Is the groom and the church is the bridegroom. That the church is to be devoted only to Christ. That he was willing to give up his life for her. That is the pattern in our marriages. That the wives should be devoted to their husbands in all things. That husbands should be ready to give up their lives for their wives. And put aside all that they have for them. That they might grow in holiness and beauty and likeness That we as a church do everything that we can to help couples and to promote that, that tight bond that should be there. Lord, we each may know friends, family members, whoever they are, of those whose marriages might be in trouble. Perhaps worldliness has crept in. Perhaps selfishness has come upon one or maybe even both parties. Perhaps they never knew what they really should do in marriage. Perhaps they never had a good idea of how, how high the Lord holds a, a view of marriage. That he would give us this institution. How high he holds us in, in accountable both to him and to one another. The great responsibility he has given mothers and fathers to raise children in godly homes. Perhaps there's been pain and struggle. Lord, we pray that everyone here who has gone through that would know your forgiveness. That they would turn from any thoughts of those things and seek you. Lord, that they would lay themselves before the throne. Confessing whatever it is is upon their hearts. And seeking forgiveness and knowing that grace that you bring. Perhaps the couple's would come together before the throne and do that. Lord, for there we can find the mercy and the compassion that we need. There we can find the mending of broken hearts. These things are not easy, Lord, but there is great joy to be found there. Come upon us today, Lord, that our eyes might be focused not upon the world, not upon what the world says is normal, but upon being salt and walking in step with the things of the word, the things of Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Our hymn is 401, Jesus I Come. Let's stand as we sing together 401.